Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. This is episode 23, In the Belly of the Dragon. My name is David Orban, and I am very glad to have you on the show. Before we start, I want to remind you that uh, uh, even if we are live, you can always watch the previous episodes, both on Facebook and on YouTube. And on YouTube, you can also subscribe uh, to the channel playlist. Uh, we also have a Discord community, and I invite you to join on davidorban.com discord. And finally, if you find the show valuable, as well as uh, other content uh, that I produce uh, together uh, with my team and the knowledge that I share, you are welcome to become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash davidorban. Today's guest is Peter Sherman Crosby from Beijing, China. Peter is a social entrepreneur in global media, multicultural communications, and information technologies. Currently, he's based in, in Beijing, and he is the executive producer, co-director, photographer, and host uh, of the documentary television series that uh, is planning to air on uh, the Chinese television, Belly of the Dragon. So welcome, uh, Peter, on uh, Searching for the Question Live. Hi, David. Great to see All you. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> now, it's been we, a are while. Seeing, we are seeing uh, a black bar which represents your audio. And uh, the reason is because uh, it is not easy to set these things up. Uh, and uh, technology always requires little uh, twiddling. I can show you on your own. And I can be on my own. Uh, but when we are all together, uh, one way or another, the, <laughs> the, the, the second you will show up uh, uh, where we get the audio from. But uh, this uh, is also characterized by experimentation, adaptation, and these days adaptability is certainly a very, very important factor in everything we do. So let's start with that. Uh, tell us, uh, how are you? How are you doing in Beijing, China? Are you still in lockdown? Uh, what is going on? Let's start with that, which is really the, one of the most important questions for our guests uh, every episode. Well, we, we share something, uh, another thing, David, um, because uh, we were very early to the COVID-19 cycle in, in Beijing. Literally, we started uh, our lockdown uh, February 2nd. Yeah, February 2nd. <clears throat> and so for a month, five weeks, um, we really were regimented as far as leaving our apartment building, as far as going to the grocery store, um, always wearing a mask, wearing blue surgical gloves whenever, whenever we had them. Um, and um, your temperature being being taken like a like a like a gun to the head sometimes, um, just to make sure that you're 36 Celsius, 98 point something um, Fahrenheit. And you know that's kind of actually reassuring to have your temperature taken two or three times a day. Now that it's spring and it's 10 weeks from the Wuhan lockdown, things have loosened up. Um, more people are walking with their their masks at half mask. More people are 
are, are going shopping without any gloves. And um, the, the bank, when I go to the bank, uh, the bank receptionist no longer comes to me in a hazmat suit. So they, they used to. Wow, up. that's that's amazing. It's um, feeling more human. And and uh, in in Italy as well as as we know things have been very complex, especially in the Bergamo area where I am. Mm. And very rapidly, a few things have uh, been adopted. The simplest, like uh, the plexiglass uh, um, wall uh, between you and uh, the, the the counter, the checkout counter at the grocery store, mm. uh, or okay. uh, the fact that. Uh, Everybody needs to wear a mask, uh, uh, which wasn't at all common uh, in Europe, of course, before. Uh, and yeah. it was kind of lame that, uh, that uh, the authorities would insist that the mask is not needed. And now they are saying, yeah, the mask is very yeah. much needed. Uh, <laughs> and the reason they did that before is because there were not enough masks and they were afraid mm -hmm. that people sure. would hoard. And then the healthcare workers wouldn't have right. the masks that, that, that they needed. Now, one thing that I like to show uh, on, on our show uh, is uh, uh, where we were and, and where we are. So yesterday we were in Budapest, Hungary, in the middle of Europe. And uh, today we went uh, to Beijing, China. And uh, I hope uh, all of you can find both uh, on, on the map. But uh, seeing this uh, animated on Google Earth is, is always wonderful. What, where are you just mm. uh, as a quarter? Uh, Beijing has, I don't know how many people, 10 million, 20 million, a lot of people. Uh, to 20 million in the general metropolitan area now. Um, and, and I live right in the old section of the city. The, the, the city has six ring roads. And I live in the, inside the second ring road. So the area is lots of low buildings. Hutong is what they call them, right? Small little alleyways, um, you know, clay tile roofs. Of course, now all the buildings have air conditioning on, on top of them. And many of them have been um, renovated inside. You, you, you wouldn't know it from, um, from the outside, but inside, many of them are just gorgeous. So... Um, and, and, and these were I live traditionally, in a... uh, uh, not Houston. How do you, how do you uh, spell Hutton so that Google can find me the right images? It should be H-U-T-O-N-G. Oh, with the final G. There you go. Yeah, I missed the final G. So am I correct that these were dwellings for entire families or multiple families with their internal courtyards as well? Exactly. Not, not all of them have that internal courtyard. It may be more a, a long shared corridor, and then different families would have access to that. Um, the, I've made a, a friend with a, a local fellow. He's 67. He's taking care of his 90-year-old mother. They've lived there since his childhood. His daughter lives next door. And... Um, they are now, he's very excited because now he is a, a Hutong millionaire. Wow, of course, you can't really sell. The, the, the paper value of the building uh, went, uh, went way up. So yeah. um, uh, our uh, show is, uh, is seen uh, really a little bit all over the world. 
we have uh, people saying uh, hi, uh, Angelo from Italy, I would assume, says Buonasera. And then uh, we have uh, Rizwan Riaz uh, uh, from, I would assume, Pakistan saying hello, David and Peter. And uh, I invite uh, our viewers, whether they are on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, uh, where we are streaming simultaneously, to both say hi, as well as uh, to send uh, their questions that uh, we will attempt to answer uh, in, in real time. So, uh, Peter, the, uh, the, the, you, you are not Chinese, right? So let's start with that. Uh, uh, tell me, <laughs> how, did you, how did you end up uh, in uh, Beijing uh, and, and um, uh, what, what is the path that brought you where you are? Well, the, 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 the short answer is um, I've just realized recently that um, I was in high school when Nixon came to China, right? So I, I was a junior or a senior in high school. And, and before that, we had ping pong diplomacy, uh, the first Americans who came to China to, as athletes. Um, and, and I think that planted a seed for me. And... Um, then 20, 30 years ago, 1988, um, I actually had a bicycle accident in, uh, in Los Angeles. And it just made me aware, uh, gosh, what are things that I want to make sure that I do in my life? And going to China was one of them, um, riding a bicycle in China specifically. And when I came in 1988, I went to very rural China, out to Xinjiang and up in the Mongolian area then to Chengdu and to Beijing. And I just fell in love with China. I just was delighted and, and welcomed and found it very warm, very generous. And then in Beijing, the bicycle lanes, no, no cars in the bicycle lanes. Today, even Beijing still has big bicycle lanes, but you have to fight with the scooters and the cars and the buses in the bicycle lane. But I fell in love with China. And uh, during these 40 years, uh, from the 80s <laughs> uh, to the 20s, uh, there have been just incredible changes in China. Um, I, I think one of the most uh, 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 visible um, representations of, of this incredible change is, is looking at, and, and, and let me try to do that uh, uh, real time, uh, the difference in Shanghai, uh, old, new, let's see what comes up. Well, mm. um, this is not the comparison photo that I was looking for because there are some <laughs> that are that are just uh, incredible that show uh, sure. Shanghai as was as it was a, a fishing uh, village uh, in, mm -hmm. the, in the 60s and and now. Yep. Um, we were there together, Peter, right? Uh, just uh, five or six years ago. David, look, um, look what I found. And how can, can you I see? share that? I need to share. How do I? Do you have a share right, button well, on your screen? I do. It just it went away and when I brought up the holder. And then, and then uh, you need to to pick. Uh, uh, whether you want to share your entire screen, which probably I don't recommend, but just to share the specific window. 
<laughs> okay. Um, Firefox, it looks like it's not. Um, um, anyway, can you see that? You see a photo? No. No. Okay. No. I, I I see I see something uh, just uh, <laughs> okay. just not, not not great. So we're not going to share the screen. Okay. <laughs> it was a photo of you and I standing on the Bund in Shanghai five years ago, almost to the day, David, April April fifteenth or so. There you go, April 15, 2015. <laughs> that, that's us. You have you have a little beard and I have no beard. No. Yes, I guess we're growing up now. <laughs> yeah, so so um I will keep uh, searching for the photo of Shanghai new and old. Uh, in the meantime, Barbara sure. says hi from New York. Uh, but uh, hey, while I'm doing that, uh, why don't you tell your impressions uh, of uh, China, the old and China, the new and the source of that, uh, that impression? Because if I'm not mm. mistaken, your ability to get a deeper understanding of how China was then comes from experiences that uh, brought you very close to uh, people and, and, and their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, <laughs> after my uh, sort of love affair with China in the late 80s, um, I was a photojournalist and I was doing stories for the LA Times and uh, Asia Week and different uh, magazines in Asia. I actually, I moved to Tokyo, then to Hong Kong, and then to Beijing. And in 1993-94, I actually, I went to film school in Beijing, mostly to study Chinese and sneak into film classes. So um, that was uh, sort of a life dream come true. And then I had this idea of riding a bicycle from Beijing to Hong Kong. It's about uh, 3,000 kilometers. So I did that, National Geographic, made a television program out of it. And that was 1994. Um, and we went through this, this, more the center of China, through uh, Hubei, Shanxi, through the, now you know Hubei, um, which is the province of Wuhan, and then to Hunan, you know, the hot food, and then down south, Guizhou, Guangdong, and to Hong Kong. Yeah, so you, as, you, as you didn't do it as, correct. Uh, this is a, <laughs> a, a supposed airplane uh, ride from uh, Hong Kong to from Beijing to Hong Kong, but yours uh -huh. wasn't uh, like that for sure. Right. You know, if you look at bellyofthedragon.com, you can pull up the actual charted. Um, um, there should be the charted map just on the home page. There we go. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. So this is this is uh, including the stops that you made, I, I assume, right? Right. Um, so and, so and how, long, then, how long did it take uh, the, the bicycle trip? It, it, it took six months. So um, I uh, uh, went with a partner. I'd, I'd fallen in love with a, uh, a young Japanese gal, and, and we thought this was our going to be our extended honeymoon. And, uh, you know, the old adage of traveling together, you really get to know some people. <laughs> and it took so, us six so months she, to get... 
Oh, oh, but she endured the whole trip. Well, that, that she is endured. Something. She endured the whole trip. Absolutely, she was actually she was a, a gamer, right? I mean, she really stayed the whole way, and then she went back to her job at the World Bank. Okay, well, <laughs> we had this once in a lifetime experience. Absolutely, and so uh, this time, and, yes. So, so, so the reason I'm here now is to actually 25 years later to do that bicycle ride again. The roads have changed, the towns have changed, the people have changed. We've we've grown beards, um, <laughs> so we're making a six-part television series with the National Television Network, and hopefully we'll be able to make a film out of that as well. Um, riding starting this summer in, in August or September, and three months should take us three months, as opposed to six months. But the opportunity to show rural China and how that's evolved, and to be with people that I met 25 years ago, who may have been children or teenagers or young adults, um, and to have them tell their stories about how how has China changed, right? The Western perceptive, the outside perception of how China has changed, very different from how folks feel about their country's change, the modernization, um, the opportunities for most people in China are just vastly different in 25 years. So we want them to tell their stories. And uh, uh, you mentioned to me that actually you were able to find the, the, one of the families that you were with maybe for a more extended amount of time back then, yeah. and, and you, mm -hmm. you found the same family, uh, the, 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 the man and woman who then were children, and, and you are now in touch with them planning to go and visit. Mm. And, and the, the remarkable thing is, and this is just a, an example, so we stayed with the, the Liu family. We stayed with the Liu family who um, lived at that time, they lived in a dirt house, literally a, a rammed earth, rammed by hand, dirt house up in the mountains of Hubei, the same province as Wuhan. And um, they invited us in, it was a cold rainy evening, and they invited us in for a hot potato and some tea and then proceeded to insist that we stay, that we have a meal with them. Now, these, these people literally, they're part of an ethnic minority, the Tuja. The Tuja people literally means earth people. Um, but the, you, you can't get much poorer than living in a dirt house. And, you know, this, the floor was straw. They had three kids, which was unusual at that time in 1994, to have three children. Because they were not a minority, there are 55 minority tribes, minority groups in China. They received exceptions from the one-child policy? They did. It, it, most minorities were able to have two, especially if you're in a rural area. But for their third child, they were fined 3,000 renminbi. And 3,000 rem, 3, renminbi then would be about 400 and $50 for people who lived in a dirt house, a very substantial amount of money. And then um, uh, the father had a vasectomy and the mother had a hysterectomy. And 
and, and that was the, and that, that was it. their last track album. <laughs> that stopped it. <laughs> but but you know even with that even with that trauma, they were a, a, a joyful family living in you know the most difficult circumstances, and. So to we had uh, an emotional connection because the father and I, well, because because we just did, because we were just human to human, and um, they were very generous. But the father and I had exactly the same birthday. And so one year apart, um, he was one year older than I. And so that was just an affinity that was far too strange to ignore. So flash forward to 23 years ago, I decided when I came back to China, if I was going to do this project, the first thing I needed to do was find the Liu family. Liu is a family name. Ying Ha is his name, um, was to try and find them. And so I had hired an interpreter and a cameraman and a car. And we went to that area of China, remote area of China. I thought, well, you, we're you just going to drive around. It wasn't evil to, enough to, to, to Google them? Uh, it, it was not that easy? Well, Shash, you, you, you stole my punchline. Oh. So WeChat, WeChat, right? As we're going there, the friend of a friend knows the production company in Shanghai who knows somebody in that province who knows the mother of somebody they went to college with. She's a party member. She has access to the, the census files for that county. There's only three Liu families in that county. And so before we even got there, oh, they found them. We're going to have lunch tomorrow. Wow. And it was just, yeah, and it was, it was, it was, it was touching beyond belief to have the same kind of affinity 25 years later with these folks. And um, then the next day, um, they were able to bring their three children, their wives, their kids, um, all to, um, uh, I wanted to pay them back. They had given me their version of a banquet 25 years later, cooked over an open fire. And so I wanted to throw the biggest hotel banquet I could, I could afford for them. And so that was a great joy. I mean, it was really, you know, we don't often get to give back so directly, you know, in kind of a karmic way. Um, <laughs> no, no, I don't know how much time you spent with them after the fact, but what I imagine <laughs> is that this family for 20 years or more uh, um, had this, this legendary figure, a crazy American that spent some time with us and then left. And the children growing up, their memories got hazier and hazier, but still they would tell the stories uh, when they were eating. And then the crazy American shows up and the younger who have never seen him, but heard the story, realized mm. that he exists. <laughs> so yes. It must have been quite a shock. <laughs> well, one of the things that's interesting was, was the father was actually chastised for not asking us for money. Why didn't you get money from them? You're living All in the their Americans house. are gave... ultra rich. Exactly. Well, they would ask us, you know, why are you riding a bicycle? Why don't you fly? You're rich. Um, and, and so anyway, he was chastised at that time um, for um, allowing these strangers into their home, 
not getting any reward, being, you know, sort of the, the, the pauper, uh, uh, the, the generous pauper stereotype. And so then to come back 25 years later, just like you're talking about, like this, this out of this, out of the fog comes this human being from the stories was so redeeming for him, right? Here's a poor man who has lived with this. This is the nature of who I am, but I did, uh, you know, I don't, I don't take advantage of situations. And here he's redeemed in front of the eyes of his family and community. It was very touching. It was very touching for all of us to recognize that um, this kind of generosity, inviting someone into your home, giving them a banquet, is not something that goes unrewarded. So we have uh, Justine saying hi from the Philippines. Uh, we hi, have Justine. Marita from uh, Argentina. Uh, bravo. Marita from... is my friend. <laughs> oh, really? Hi, Marita. You know her? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, we, that's wonderful. We met in Buenos Aires in a jazz club. She's she's <laughs> lovely. Hey, Marita. There you go. What there is... you go. She's watching. Uh, yeah. And we have uh, uh, Konstantin saying Privet uh, from, I would guess, Ukraine uh, because of uh, the colors uh, on his, uh, on his, um, his icon, right? Yeah. Hey. Now, Justine... Welcome asks a very, very interesting and important question. How do you go about making a documentary film? Um, hmm. It is not enough to just uh, take a camera and shoot uh, and, and, you know, then hmm. go home and stay on your computer. Um, there are a lot of, lot of things, uh, uh, the rights, Consideration. The distribution, the the um, uh, the the way you you are able to finance both the period of uh, uh, of of the shooting and then hopefully mm. marketing the movie mm. going to festivals tell us more about the the business of doing a documentary that i think can be very important to justine but also to other viewers that's uh, a great question <laughs> Justine, I, I, I wouldn't advise going into documentary filmmaking as a, a very lucrative path because, um, you know, films like documentary films by like Michael Moore or this now uh, film American Factory, which was very popular and won an Oscar in the United States last year. These are, are few and far between. But as far as the tactics of being able to make this film here, um, I started coming on business trips and started coming as a tourist two years ago um, and carrying my camera. I'm still a photographer, carrying GoPros and just filming as much as I could. And then to find the Liu family, um, I hired a, a cameraman and an interpreter and we just went about it ourselves and just started collecting film, had this very rich experience. And so I've now gone back to meet with that Liu family um, for the Lunar New Year's or Chinese New Year's, we call it, um, and to be there for Autumn Festival and to be there for our birthdays. And I've just been able to film that very low, in a very low key manner. What's happened is that this story and what I've been doing and what I've been publishing online, 
uh, caught the eye of a, a production company here, uh, a documentary film director who's very well known. And we met at a film festival in, in China. And so now it's, uh, gosh, now it's a year and a half later and I'm working with them. And they are, uh, he was an independent film director. His little group of people, they were bought up by another company that produces more mainstream content. Um, and now we're partnered with the National TV Network to create this six-part television series. The film opportunity really is our sort of legacy of all that um, TV making to be able to have the footage and I'll be shooting as well to make a, a film uh, to make a film going forward. We're partnered with Discovery Asia for that. But, um, you know, one of the things about working in China is everything can change very, very quickly, very, very easily. Not just with things like COVID, but because of the sensitivities. Um, also, you know, being an American. Right now, being an American in China is a little bit more fraught and a little bit more important, frankly, that we're able to make a, a film or TV series that's about friendship, that's about respect, that's about understanding between Americans and Chinese people. Well, American <laughs> and Chinese uh, people. Uh, so uh, thank you for that uh, that answer. I uh, actually looked up an article by, Mar not by, uh, but about Michael Moore's 13 mm. rules for making documentary films. And I posted it as a, a comment of mine uh, to Justine's uh, question. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and so let's uh, talk more about uh, how you see America and China being able to, to keep coexisting. Because the alternative with tens of thousands of nuclear warheads is pretty bleak for everybody, not only for mm. America and China. So mm. um, do you see uh, opportunities for, for strengthening or rebuilding uh, positive relationships? Uh, how is uh, COVID going to change, for example, uh, supply chains in, in your opinion, mm. where so much uh, of uh, important or unimportant things that uh, Americans buy was made in China uh, is, it, mm. is, is it still going to be the case? How, how do you see both political and economic aspects of this f very, very important relationship? Mm. Well, uh, I'll, start, I'll start with the <clears throat> sort of the on-the-ground realities of goods being made in China. And that has been evolving because of the trade war and because... China is no longer the lowest cost provider, right? China used to be the place where you go and you got your shoes made, your iPhones made, your clothes made, your television. Now, China is no longer the lowest. The laborers here now have uh, expectations. They have more middle class pay scales. They have more skills. They're more international. And so that kind of very low labor cost has moved on to Vietnam. Cambodia, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh. There are skilled people in those countries which don't require more of a middle, middle class um, income. So 
those supply chains have already been shifting, accelerated by the 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 faux trade war, uh, the the trumped up trade war, um, and now we've had this in, in, you know this uh, strike force experience of goods that are critical to people's health seem you know, seem secondary, they seem these gowns, these masks, they seem like, why would those be so important, right? Why, why, why wouldn't we have those made in China or Cambodia or Vietnam? Well, now there's an answer for that around the world. These are essential to our nation's health, our state's health, our city's health. So I think you'll find more and more uh, countries, municipalities, bringing more of those capacities back home for, for their own security, for their own safety. Not, not really so much political. The political then is, is the leadership in the United States and in China wanting to take advantage of this tragedy, frankly. Um, long term, longer term, besides those supply chain um, considerations, you know, the United States was allied with China in the Second World War, the United States since 1972 has been the largest trading partner with China. Um, there are 400,000 Chinese students in American universities now. So this has been going on for 30 years. So the exchanges, the cultural understanding is a lot deeper than the political fireworks that are going on now. I think that once this COVID experience, once the, uh, not the memory phase, but once the pain fades and the, the, the facts are sorted out, I, I think there's a real opportunity for people to people to, to recognize the commonalities in fighting things like the next pandemic, climate change, uh, technology interoperability, um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities. Maybe I'm being Pollyannish. Um, I have a tendency to have sort of rose-colored glasses about what's possible, but that's why I'm here, trying to tell that positive story, that possibility story. And and uh, for those uh, 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 Americans uh, watching this who who are uh, questioning uh, uh, the usefulness of uh, trading with China regardless of the balance of trade uh, hmm. the exports the u.s exports to china uh, have uh, increased uh, tenfold uh, as well over the course of the past uh, 20 years so hmm. um, that is uh, that is quite substantial too uh, this is wolfram alpha where uh, you can see all kinds of cool um, computational results to your queries like uh, GDP per head uh, of China, uh, which I am sure went uh, uh, up uh, quite a lot. Uh, and this is in logarithmic scale uh, in US dollars per year per person from 1960 to 2018. It was $100, uh, and uh, now it 400? is... No, no, five thousand GDP per five thousand. Okay, I can't read this. Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, more now it's nine thousand, nine thousand seven hundred. Mm. Uh, 
per person uh, per year. Now, this is, of course, GDP and not uh, the, um, the per income of, of income of, of, of the people or the families. Mm. Uh, and uh, it is it is a, a big issue in, in many countries. Um, mm. But one is just using metrics for a second. Um, when I was here 25 years ago and 30 years ago, the um, average earning of uh, the per capita average earning in China was less than $4,000 a year. Now it's more like $20,000 a year. So people have gone from abject poverty um, under $2 a day in the UN scale of abject poverty, poverty to uh, more of a middle class, at least in China, their purchasing power is what we would consider middle class. So that Saturday, what people want to do is they want to take out their little car, which may be electric, which may only have three wheels, or it may have a, be a Mercedes or a BMW or a Tesla, and they want to go wash it. And they want to go take their kids for a drive, right? It's, it's just so normal by most developed country standards to be able to have these amenities and, and this kind of, kind of freedom. But that wasn't something that was available 25 years ago. So uh, we have Dharma from uh, Nepal and we have uh, Bert Ola from Dharma. Sweden. And hey, we have... Bert Ola! <laughs> we have Muhammad. <laughs> Uh, uh, who says China and America are both blaming each other for the coronavirus spread instead of fighting jointly, they are splitting the world. I think this is a very, very smart remark. <laughs> exactly. Mohammed, you, you're absolutely reading my mind. Why, so, why can't we take responsibility and look at the future? Um, one thing you, you, you said uh, caught uh, my attention because... Um, the spread of, for example, electric uh, vehicles, especially small motorcycles, mopeds, mm -hmm. uh, but also electric buses and electric mm -hmm. cars right. in China is huge. Shanghai, for mm -hmm. example, uh, outlawed many years ago already internal combustion engine uh, motorcycles in the city. Scooters. Uh, uh, the scooters can only be uh, electric uh, and they have uh, now converted all the buses um, in, in, in Shanghai to be to be electric as well. And uh, mm. um, there are a lot of electric car brands unavailable uh, in, in the West and uh, they are selling many, many of them in China. So it right. is interesting to see how. Uh, certain decisions made by the, the, the Chinese administration, just like, for example, Germany drove uh, solar photovoltaic, solar uh, adoption through incentives and subsidies, right. is accelerating sustainable um, infrastructure creation, in this case for right. transportation. So is that and something that, that, that you can observe on the ground in Beijing as well? Sure. Um, that that German solar installation boom subsidized to lower the kilowatt hour um, cost, all of those photo, photovoltaic cells, not all of them, but a huge percentage of them came from China. 
that built the Chinese infrastructure for the uh, solar industry now, which is now growing year by year. Uh, wind and solar here have been growing 35%, um, I think over the course of the last decade. So they're now the largest installed base of both solar and of wind um, in the world. Um, back to the, um, the, we started with electric cars, right? So a couple of things about electric cars. I said I went to Beijing Film Academy in 1994 to study Chinese and sneak into the film classes before I did my bicycle ride across China. In 1994, the parking lot at Beijing Film Academy was for bicycles. There would be 200 bicycles in the parking lot and there would be people who would help you get your bicycle in and out of the, out of the, the tangle, right? Now, when I went back to, to Beijing Film Academy two years ago to study again, um, the parking lot is the largest collection of Teslas that I've seen in one place in my life all with the electric plug-in stanchions, all ready to go, more BMWs and Mercedes. You have to, in China, you have to be a rich kid to go to Beijing Film Academy. And there that wealth is showing off in choices which are not only you know, luxury brands, but electric is just much more of, of people's ambitions here. It's, it's a way of showing off your sophistication. So everything from Teslas to um, uh, scooters, um, just two-wheeled scooters, which are, are kind of silent and as a bicyclist, um, incredibly scary because they come out, out of nowhere be, behind you. You don't hear anything. And here whoo, goes the messenger delivering someone's coffee. Woo! And, and actually, uh, in Europe, uh, starting next year, it will be compulsory for electric vehicles to make a noise when they go above uh, 20 miles an hour, 30 kilometers an mm. hour. Uh, and mm. I visited a, a Romanian software company about a year mm. ago, um, and uh, they work for very large uh, uh, corporations doing all kinds of software uh, development. And, and one of uh, their specialties is to work as a subcontractor for car makers uh, doing the software that uh, makes your... Uh, your um, <laughs> airbag uh, uh, explode the right explode. time, not 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 when it is not good. Uh, and they they showed me the prototypes of the sounds that uh, the electric cars <laughs> will make artificially by law, and every brand, potentially every model of car, will have its own recognizable sound sure uh, that is now designed rather than uh, than than being naturally made by the uh, the the thing yeah uh, I, uh, I welcome is, that well uh, i understand your concern and mm. and obviously uh, it is um, taking away um, some consequences that could have been interesting for for cars uh, that are electric and silent we would have had cities that are much more um, uh, you know, you could you could Quiet. hear the birds thinking, thinking, sing, singing instead of chirping. <laughs> well, I like of, birds. Uh, of... I like you could hear the birds thinking. I actually like that. I think that's a great <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> that, that is good too. Uh, and 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 uh, many science fiction uh, movies, uh, for example, Minority Report comes into my mind. Show 
future cities with a lot of uh, uh, vehicle traffic very very silent and it is not going to be mm. exactly that because of this kind mm. of imposition i don't know if other countries are contemplating similar legislation but this is coming uh in force in europe uh, already already next year um, mm. so just a, a a funny little side note david because we talked about thinking birds um in beijing there is a tradition of carrier pigeons and this tradition goes back 200 years or longer where uh, the carrier pigeons were actually used as, as messengers between the warlords and the armies. Now, even with all this development in the city, there's still people who keep coops of carrier pigeons on their roofs, feed them. And then in the evenings and in the morning, they let their flock out. It may be 20 or 30 or 40 birds and they'll fly in murmuration around through the city, right? Just these beautiful waves. And they'll put a whistle on one or two of the bird's legs. So you hear this. And so I live in a place where I can see one of the old, uh, the old gates from Beijing. And as the sun sets, I'll have these beautiful birds doing their patterns with the Chinese gate in the background, the sunset. I, you know, I'm still in love with China. What can I say? This kind of stuff tickles me, warms my absolutely, heart. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and for me, part of um, uh, the joy of traveling, do you, do you remember when we did that, um, is uh, the ability to experience uh, the, the warmth of people all over the world, mm. probably the most important, uh, the, the culture and the beauty of cities and nature, uh, monuments and, and uh, very different like uh, uh, waterfalls uh, or, or uh, canyons on you know, nature in, in its variety. But then, mm. uh, I don't know if it comes second or, or, or third, uh, the, the diversity and the variety, the surprising things, uh, both big uh, uh, but also tiny in the in the daily mm. lives of, of people. Sure. For for example, uh, in uh, many homes in America or Europe, people don't take off their shoes as enter their their <laughs> homes, their right. houses. Um, my daughter Jordana is now in Korea, and you better uh, for take off first, your shoes. For, for the first few days, it was it was uh, hard, but then it became so natural. And, and that is a little thing, but represents mm -hmm. differences in, in the ways uh, people, uh, people live. What, uh, uh, what uh, other things uh, you, would, uh, you would highlight uh, in uh, differences, um, uh, whether it is obvious like food uh, or, or less obvious, uh, like how mm -hmm. better the Beijing subway system is compared with New York's? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Um, well, I'll take something that's very, you know, something very present for all of us. We're all facing this COVID infection, this COVID pandemic, and so the idea of wearing a mask, right, is something that even when I lived in Japan twenty-five and thirty years ago, people who were sick or felt sick, like they had a cold or the flu they would wear a mask because they wanted to protect their community, their family, their community, their coworkers. It was just a common courtesy, 
nothing strange about it. And so that's pervasive throughout Asia, that kind of family, community, that outward presence of yourself being as important, if not more important than your own egoistic, well, I don't look good in a mask. I don't need to wear a mask. Wear a mask, who do you think I am? I'm American, I can do whatever I want. So the acceptance of the mask as a necessary protection for the community was unequivocal and fast. It was, it was a matter of supply, not a matter of regimentation, not a matter of law. It was simply that people wanted to protect each other. And so people now here in Beijing, out of the hot zone, 10 weeks later, still are wearing masks. You know, we, 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 may, we may dangle the mask from one ear, or we may wear it underneath our chin as a, a, like a chin strap because we're talking to someone, but we all have masks. And, you know, I think that has to do with an outward consideration for your, your community first. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to show it as an overlay because it is just uh, uh, too, too long, right? Uh, covers all the screen. But uh, David James Bloomberg uh, chimes in uh, with a contrary opinion around uh, the uh, effect and the necessity and the usefulness of subsidies on solar and wind. He says mm. it, they led to higher electric rates. And he says that nuclear, nuclear power, natural gas and hydroelectric are more practical, economical, reliable and environmentally sustainable if mm. the full cost accounting context is detailed with mining rare metals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he adds, uh, the point about China and USA uh, equally responsible for spreading COVID-19 is ridiculous. Okay. Uh, and okay. Uh, and we welcome, we welcome uh, uh, comments. Uh, uh, David, thank you for, for chiming in. So well, I also, uh, I want to, I want to, I just want to salute one thing that was said there around full cost accounting, right? This idea that externalities in the environment, in the social fabric, in the blood diamonds or the molybdenum <laughs> that's, that's tainted from a civil war area, that that's not accounted for in the ways that our corporations and government do business. That's a real issue. And that's a real important point of leverage, I think, for change. So I, I really salute that somebody else there, out there banging that you know, full cost accounting drum. That's great, David, thanks. Uh, absolutely. And uh, the more uh, businesses understand that either take uh, uh, responsibility for those um, uh, in order to generate profit for their stakeholders, or mm, sure. uh, it will be imposed on them, right? Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the way maybe uh, in the 19th century, uh, uh, European monarchies colluded with European businesses, uh, closing both of their eyes uh, uh, with regards to the destruction that they wrote uh, through colonies that were literally depredated, uh, is gone. Uh, now, um, multinationals uh, will be held accountable. Um, in Italy, for example, it is a minor example, but uh, I think uh, a, a good example. Uh, Ryanair uh, uh, 
used to have uh, 300 Ryanair Airlines. Do you remember those? Uh, used yes, to have sure. uh, 300 uh, um, employees, maybe 400 employees, and they pretended actually they were not employees because they didn't have a, uh, an, an, an office in Italy. Their office was right. uh, sure. was in Ireland. So so these were, yeah, they were war, Ryanair. Um, uh, Gig uh, workers. You know, whatever whatever they were right, right. and and uh, and uh, italy um uh, listened to the to the unions and they said sorry guys we understand you are pushing for profit and it is expensive to have employees in italy uh, but you have employees in italy these are employees mm -hmm. in italy nothing that you can yeah. do about it um and 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 david uh, uh, is uh, thanking us uh, for our integrity in sharing counterpoints absolutely mm, absolutely um so we are we are close uh, to the end of our hour together peter what is the message that you would like uh, to uh, to 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 give to the people uh watching what is that they can do uh, after mm. spending the time uh, with us both uh, regarding your projects but regarding their relationship with China, their ability to mm. build bridges uh, with people. Mm. What uh, what would you like to to say in in closing? Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for for tuning in, and thank you, David, for for bringing me on. It's great to great to see you and and play with you. Um, uh, the um, I'd, I'd like people to check out. You know, uh, my uh, our website is. Uh, bellyofthedragon.com. That is a, a really a placeholder website. It's not the full production. That's something that we're, we're working on. We work with a television network, et cetera, but it'll give you a sense of the, uh, the context and the 1994 photography and uh, some of the photography over the last two or three years and some of the video. The, the thing that I would, people who are interested in China, one of the things I think that's essential for people to understand where does this attitude now come from? I mean, there's, a, there's an attitude, <laughs> Americans' righteous indignation, but also in China, there's a sense of uh, the history, especially of the last 100 years, is very different than how Chinese people view their history as one of the largest, if not the largest, economies civilizations, histories in the world, and the Western experience of China over the last 100 years is that China is a place to get your things done, made cheaply, it is a place where we can have foreign concessions, right? The British can come in and bomb China and then own Hong Kong. There is a, a deep sense of, they call it 100 years of humiliation in China. You know, that's a little bit dramatic. But in the context of 5,000 years of history, they want people to understand that China is coming back to a position that is held historically in the culture of the world, in the place of the world. And so I, I think studying the history, not even studying, just reading up about it, um, will give people a better sense of uh, just an understanding of the positions that, you know, the nation is presenting, and then people are people. 
right? People want their kids to go to school. They want their mom and dad to be healthy. They, you know, they want to, they want to have a good life. It's not so extraordinary that uh, China's growth is driven by small entrepreneurs at the ground level. And, uh, you know, people are people come to China, meet the people, eat the food. And, uh, well, uh, certainly, certainly we, are looking forward to be able to come to China uh, from uh, mm. many places. And I'm sure China wants us to come as well. It, mm -hmm. The ability to travel will be restored uh, and uh, we will see how fast and, and what kind of uh, um, new rituals uh, we will go through. Uh, maybe uh, not only being uh, checked uh, with a thermometer, but uh, we may have to produce a new kind of immunity passport, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there may come a, a, a time when uh, our mobile phones are uh, including, uh, or wearables uh, are including new kinds of um, sensing ability where they can mm. constantly monitor our uh, well-being. And that will be good not only for getting on a plane, but it will be good for us. Uh, hmm. Being able to, to, to know that you are well uh, is, is going to be greatly enhanced as a consequence of the crisis that, uh, that we are going through. So, Peter, thank you very much for, for being with us. And uh, oh, I'm looking forward to, to learn uh, more about uh, uh, the adventures uh, in the belly of the dragon in the future. Hmm. Thank you, David. This has been, been great fun and good to see you again. Thank you. Absolutely. So uh, thanks for uh, watching this uh, episode of uh, Searching for the Question live and uh, for the numerous uh, remarks and questions. Uh, and uh, uh, I uh, want uh, to invite you to uh, join uh, also uh, tomorrow uh, when we will be in Switzerland and uh, we will talk about uh, uh, technology becoming ever more powerful and how can you uh, take advantage of uh, technology, not only using it in your life, but does it represent an investment opportunity? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you can come to davidorban.com slash SFTQL, that stands for Searching for the Question Live, and vote for the next guest uh, on the URL slash guest vote. You can also add uh, the guest you would like uh, to see, uh, and uh, uh, we can uh, uh, crowdsource uh, the, the future episodes uh, together. Um, you can uh, join our uh, group chat on davidorban.com slash discord. And uh, if uh, you like uh, the show and uh, the knowledge that uh, it shares, uh, the points of view that uh, it uh, popularizes or that uh, it wants to, to document in one way or another, uh, you are welcome to uh, support the show on uh, Patreon by going to patreon.com slash David Orban. Thank you very much and see you tomorrow.